Dear Father, uh, Father, the weather is changing, but that's fine, Father. We need the rain. And we thank you, Father, that uh, you've made the provision for us of a dry building and warm and comfortable circumstances and surroundings. Thank you, Father, for the love of those around us, the body of Christ, each person here, Father. As they've loved you, Father, and as you've loved them, they show that to one another. And We see the joy of being part of a small church in moments like this. Uh, Father, we aren't, um, we aren't content to be small. Small is, is good in some ways, Father, but it's also a recognition that there's more work that can be done. But we enjoy what you give us, Father, in this, in this close community. We value what it means and what it lets us accomplish uh, with one another in personal terms. And then, Father, we look beyond it as well in the hope that what, what you've begun here among us would be something you could use to invite even more to know your Son and to follow in his footsteps in faith. Father, we thank you for the chance to be useful to you in that way. May, not, may the year we've just finished be preparatory work, Father, for a year to come in which we'll do even more. And Father, nothing means more to us. Nothing is more important to that goal than studying your word. Father, how can we represent you if we don't look like you and talk like you and, and think like you? How can we become an ambassador for an, a country, for a, for a life that we don't reflect. These things are obvious, Father. We have to be like you. We have to think like you. We have to speak your word of truth. We won't do it perfectly, Father, but you ask us to just take a small step of faith and then look at what you will do with it. Let that be our, our hope and dream this coming year, Father. And as we enter into your text this morning, into the text of Judges, looking at men who preceded us in their own walks of faith, let us learn the good from their their bravery and their, their faith, their commitment. And let us also, Father, learn to do differently than them when they, when they take missteps. Let us see the whole truth of who they were. And let us uh, follow the best examples. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, chapter 14 is really where we'll spend our time this morning, although we back up a couple verses to finish what we left off with in chapter 13. And last time we met, we had studied the parallels between Samson's arrival and the arrival of Jesus to Mary and Joseph. It was just a perfect opportunity for us because it was Christmas Eve, and we got a chance to see how one man's life is a picture of the other's, of, of Jesus' life. But we've done that. We'll come back to that from time to time because the whole story of Samson offers us that opportunity repeatedly. But let's move on today. Let's move forward into seeing what God has planned for this remarkable man, for Samson. Last time we were in the study, the angel of the Lord had departed from Manoah and his wife, from the parents of Samson, and had given them instructions concerning how they were to raise this son. And now, as we end chapter 13, we find the birth of Samson on the pages of the, of the text. We come to the point where he's actually born, and then very quickly... We're going to move out of that into the life of Samson, into the adulthood of Samson. Let's start at the end of 13, as I said. Verse 24. The text reads, Then the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. And the child grew up and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahana Dan, between Zorah and Eshtaol. Well, we just stop there for a moment before we enter into chapter 14, just to note that Samson's been born. And if you remember last time we were here, I taught that Samson's name could be translated son of light. In Hebrew, it's Shimson. And that word means man of light, but it can also have other meanings. It has potential secondary meanings. It can be translated deliverer or savior. It can also be translated strong or daring one. 
And I think all of these names are reflective of Samson's life. They all remind us, of course, that his life will at times be a reflection of Christ as well. And even just one small detail here at the end of chapter 13 is another opportunity for us to draw a parallel between Samson and Jesus. Because if you remember in the story of Jesus, we're given the details of his birth in three of the Gospels. And then we're given a little more about his upbringing in Luke. But by and large, you don't find out much about the early life of Jesus. You cut straight from the birth to Jesus' entry into ministry at the baptism of John at around the age of 30. We do hear in Luke's Gospel that Jesus grew up and he was blessed as he learned more. And then it cuts straight to his ministry. Now notice what we see in Samson's life. Isn't it very similar? The story of Samson jumps from the announcement of his birth to a mention of his birth to, bam, chapter 14, his life as an adult. And just there at the very end, in verse 24, we hear that Samson was blessed by the Lord. And that's a bridging verse, the term would be, a bridging verse, because it's connecting his birth to his adulthood in chapter 14. And in both the Gospels and in the story of Samson, you have that same effect, a bridging verse talking about how the Lord was growing him up, and then, bam, here we are as an adult. So just another parallel that indicates to us that the story of Samson is intended to be a story that evokes what's coming with Jesus. In verse 25, at the very end there, we hear that the Spirit of the Lord begins to stir in Samson's life in a place called Mahanadan. That town is located about 14 miles due west from Jerusalem in an area of Israel called the Shephelah. The Shephela is very similar to the land we live around here in South Texas. It's actually considered foothills or hill country. It connects the coastal plain on the far western edge of Israel, down by the Mediterranean Sea, to the mountainous terrain where Jerusalem is located, very, very hilly mountainous area. Connecting those two, you have foothills. The Shephela is the term that's used for those foothills. Samson lived principally in this region. For his life. He did most of his service to the Lord here. You may remember we learned earlier that the idolatry of Israel had prompted the Lord to bring two oppressing armies, two oppressing people against Israel for a time as discipline. This is part of the cycle of judges that we've studied, obviously. He brought the Ammonites from the east and he brought the Philistines from the west and they were squeezing Israel into the middle, if you will. And we've already studied how one judge, Jephthah, took on the Ammonites in the east. He was the judge that God raised up to deal with that side of the oppression once it came time for God to give relief to Israel. And now you see Samson. Samson is the man who was called up on the west to defeat the Philistines. In fact, the service of these two judges actually overlaps for a few years while Jephthah is in service. But that's about the extent of the comparison because the style of these two men is incredibly different, to say the least. Jephthah was a man who used his mouth, principally, to convince others to fight with him or to avoid the fight altogether or whatever. And when it did come time to battle, he relied on armies to do the fighting. And he raised armies among the tribes of Israel that bordered the Jordan River Valley. That's what we've studied already. But Samson never relies on anyone but himself. He is a one-man personal deliverer. 
which is another parallel to Christ that we will examine as we move through the text of Samson. Also, remember that during this time, there's no indication that the nation of Israel has been responding to the Lord's work, either through Jephthah or through Samson. This is also a break from the normal cycle of judges. The normal cycle was, you do wrong, God puts you under pressure, you eventually decide that you rather have uh, God's grace than the pressure of the discipline, so the people would cry out for relief and repentance, then God would send the deliverer, and so on. But there's been no natural response. There's been no national repentance indicated in the text. And moreover, when Samson's time as judge comes to an end, we're going to find that the enemy he was battling, the Philistines, are still present. Remember we said the defeat of the Philistines doesn't finally arrive until David. Yet another parallel with Jesus, which we'll come back to, that there is a fight that begins, but it doesn't end until the king is ruling. Each of these details will be an opportunity we'll come back to as we study the parallels between Samson and Jesus. But of course, not everything that we're going to read about Samson is a parallel to Jesus. That's very important as well. In fact, as we leave chapter 13, we see ourselves looking at a man with great potential. I mean, he has divine appointment. He has spirit empowerment like none other in his day. But as you enter chapter 14, you find that this man does not live up to his potential. Samson is arguably the most powerfully endowed judge in the entire book, and yet he accomplishes the least of any judge. Nevertheless, the Lord's sovereignty will ensure that Samson's accomplishment is at least what the Lord intends. And though Samson brings great sin upon himself, and eventually the turmoil of that sin will come back to rest upon his head, quite literally, nevertheless, God will use him as he can to do what he wills. So let's begin now as we move to chapter 14 with Samson as an adult beginning to serve as the judge God has called him to be. And that story begins with Samson's pursuit of a Philistine wife. Verse 1. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, get her for me as a wife. Then his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. However, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, for he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Now at that time the Philistines were ruling over Israel. So as we said, Samson's in the Shephelah. He's living in a little town called Zorah, or near Zorah, and he visits another small village, which is only about four miles due west from Zorah. And this entire region is, as you just heard, under Philistine control or rule at this point in Israel's existence. And remember, these, these people ruled over Israel, but that doesn't mean there wasn't some cooperation. I think last time we were here, or two weeks ago, we said that there was sort of this uneasy cooperation. You ever heard the term frenemies? You know, friends and enemies at the same time. That was very much how these two cultures tended to work together because Israel traded with the Philistine people and they relied on the Philistines' expertise in smelting iron ore and making iron implements, which the Jews hadn't figured out how to do yet. So in the end, they ruled over Israel, they oppressed Israel, they took their land, they took their crops, they took their freedom, their peace to some extent. But on the other hand, Israel tried to make the best of it. 
Those conditions are very similar to the ones that greeted Jesus when he came in his first coming. Because the people of Israel were under Roman oppression in their day, but Rome had all the cards, right? They had all the power. The Jews were only able to do what the Romans allowed. But the Romans did allow the Jews a degree of freedom, a certain degree of autonomy. They were pressed into slavery. Their lands were taken or taxed. But at least the Jews could retain some sense of Jewish autonomy within that system. It was an uneasy peace forced upon Israel, and the whole time they felt the yoke of Gentile oppression and authority. Very similar circumstances. Into this environment, the Lord brings the judge Samson with the commission, the charge, to deliver his people from these oppressors. And right away, you see something that would appear to be running counter to that mission, because Samson takes an interest in marrying into the Philistine people, into the culture of the Philistines. He comes home one day and he tells his parents, you know what, I saw a woman in Timnah, and I'm going to marry that woman. He says, I saw a woman, as we see in our English Bible, but in Hebrew the word for woman here is in an emphatic position. Hebrew has the ability to put an emphasis on words that we don't necessarily have in English. And when you emphasize the word woman in this case, it indicates the woman, the one for me, in other words. I found my wife, is what he's effectively saying. And he directs his parents to arrange the marriage for him. And this was the customary way that marriages took place in this time. That the parents would negotiate with the parents of the other family. They'd come to an agreement over what the terms of the marriage would be. And they'd set it up for the the young boy and the girl to be married. But of course, the parents' concern at this point is, you want what kind of woman? You want a Philistine woman? How is Samson going to deliver his people from the oppression of the Philistines if he's marrying into their family? You know, it's really hard to fight against the ones you marry. No, wait a minute. That's exactly what we do. We fight the ones we marry. This doesn't work out perfectly. What am I thinking? Seriously, though, it it takes the whole idea of him defeating this force and seems to table it in favor of him wanting to become one with them. And they suggest to Samson, you know, you could look within the, the family for a wife. In fact, why don't you just look within your own people, for one thing, before you start running around with the Philistines. But Samson answers very abruptly. He tells his dad, get her because she looks good to me. The response, the tone of it is somewhat lost in the way we read it here, but in the way it was probably said, it would have been a shocking dismissal of his father's authority. In a patriarchal culture, you didn't treat dad like this. And it tells us something about Samson, doesn't it? About his character a little bit, about his, about his attitude. He seems brash. The very fact that he wants this woman shows poor judgment. He's self-willed. I don't care what you think. It's what I want that matters. He seems prone to acting according to his fleshly desires. I think it looks good to me, so that's all that matters. I'm taking her. And he certainly doesn't take kindly to advice from his elders. So at this point, you might assume that Samson's choice to marry this woman is a sinful choice, is a sinful mistake. You might assume that because, as we heard in our reading earlier this morning, Jews weren't supposed to marry people like the Philistines, or so we think. But in reality, what you heard read in Deuteronomy regards the stipulation not to marry the Canaanite people, specifically. The Canaanites, the ones who inhabited the land prior to the Israelites, the ones who descended from the grandson of Ham, those people were off limits because they were under the curse that God spoke against Canaan through Noah. But Philistines are not Canaanites. Therefore, there was nothing inherently sinful about marrying a Philistine, though obviously that's not God's will for Samson in this case. So he's not violating the law when he marries a Philistine, but neither is he doing the right thing. Moreover, we have verse 4 staring us in the face. In that verse, we learn that it was the Lord's doing 
to work about this marriage, to bring it about for reasons of his own. And as we're going to see, that doesn't mean the Lord wanted Samson to marry a Philistine woman, but it does mean that the Lord wanted to use Samson's sinful desires to get Samson going where he should have been going anyway. The Lord's going to propel Samson into his proper place as judge and destroyer of Philistines. And ironically, he's going to use Samson's interest in this Philistine wife to get that started. Now at this point, his parents agree, it appears, to support his request. So the family travels from Timnah to the place of the home of this girl to arrange the wedding details. And that, again, was customary in the day. That's where we pick up now. Verse 5. Then Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that he tore him as one tears a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. So he went down and talked to the woman, and she looked good to Samson. When he returned later to take her, he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. So he scraped the honey into his hands and went on, eating as he went. When he came to his father and mother, he gave them some, and they ate it. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey out of the body of the lion. Well, the story just went and took a strong left turn, and uh, now we're all wondering what what is going on here. Well, apparently, as Samson and his parents traveled that short distance to Timnah, remember four miles, we're talking about maybe an hour, it's not that far. Samson turned aside, we're told, into some vineyards near the town as he approached the town where the young lady's family was. And, And we have to make some assumptions at this point for why he did that. Perhaps he wanted to obtain some of the grapes to present them to her or to the family. Maybe he just needed a snack after that hour long walk. I mean, this is not uncommon. You see in the Gospels, Jesus and the disciples picking heads of grain out of fields as they walked. In fact, the law allows travelers to take produce from the field as much as they could personally eat without that being considered stealing or a crime. That was considered just a normal thing to do for people. So you couldn't prosecute someone because they went into your field, took a few grapes and ate them. But as he goes off the side of the road by himself into the vineyard, he's attacked by a young lion. It was still the case in this time of history that bear and lion occupied this part of the world. In Hebrew, it says the lion roared to encounter Samson. And then it says the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson. So in Hebrew, the words indicate the one meets the other. The roaring approaching lion is met by the rushing of the Spirit of the Lord. And as a result of the Spirit in or on Samson, he gains what appears to be supernatural strength, to say nothing of, I guess, Superman-like armament against the claws of the lion, whatever he, he had to do. But he rips the body of the lion apart with his bare hands. Samuel says, in the way a man might rip the limbs of a small lamb. We don't normally do that to small lambs, but the point is, it would have been very easy for a normal man to take a very small animal and do what Samson was doing to a large lion. Obviously, this is supernatural, as the Lord placed the lion at the disposal of Samson's strength. Remember, the lion is just as much under control of the Lord as Samson was at that point. So everything is going as planned. And there's no indication here that Samson thought himself capable of doing this sort of a thing before it happened. It would make sense to think that he was stunned by the lion, he's scared like we would be, and then the spirit came upon him and he just did what he did. And once it's over, Samson would probably have had a hard time making sense of it all. 
But as you can see it now with some hindsight, you can understand the message here a little better. What's the Lord doing, in other words, by bringing this moment to pass for Samson? The Lord places Samson under a special call. We know that from earlier. His mom knew that before he was born. And now he knows he has supernatural abilities when God chooses to appoint them. Abilities that he can put to work in defeat of enemies who at first glance appear much greater than he's capable of defeating. In this case, the enemy of the moment was the lion, obviously. On paper, if I had told you about this before it happened, on paper you would have said, well, that lion is going to have a field day with a single unarmed man alone in a field. Right? That's a given. But because of the Spirit, Samson prevails. So the lesson that God, I think, is trying to teach Samson in the moment is, you can win the battles that I have appointed you to win against the enemies I will send you against because I have prepared you for that outcome. That's the whole point of your life. But what has to happen if that outcome is to be achieved? Samson has to be willing to enter the battle. He has to come face to face with that enemy. He has to do as the Lord expects. He has to actually take up the fight. You notice the lion didn't just fall over dead. It wasn't like Samson just took a look at him and he ran away. Samson had to rip him apart. But he did it. But instead of doing what God has called him to do in defeating the Philistines, what is Samson doing right now? Right now, he is marrying them. He is moving in with them, so to speak, as opposed to defeating them. And this is a very extraordinary moment, obviously. No one in our experience has had something like this, I'm sure, and we doubt we'll ever see this. That's not normally how God works. But moments like this, in another sense, are typical for how God gets our attention and our obedience when we're wavering in the work that he's given us to do. We'll have our marching orders. You know, you'll get marching orders of some sort. You'll, you'll understand what God wants of you to some degree, in some general sense. Maybe you've heard that quiet voice people talk about speaking to your conscience. Or maybe it's just circumstances. It's obvious by how things have lined up around you, people and, and opportunities and the like, that you can see the path. You know what he's asking you to do. It, it seems self-evident. But for some reason, something in your heart, something in your head, something that's stopping you, you don't move ahead in that plan. You can see it, but you hesitate. Maybe because it just demands too much change. It's always going to be the case that if you're going to go where God sends you, it's an opportunity cost. You can do what you're doing or you can do what God is asking you to do. I've never seen a case in which you can do both. So you'll have to make a change. There'll have to be a sacrifice. There'll have to be something that gives for what God's asking you to go do in whatever sense that's required. And for some of us, that's just too much. Too much faith, too much effort, too much sacrifice. So we turn aside. And it's interesting that in this story, Samson had to turn aside from where he wanted to go to encounter what God wanted him to see. It was a choice. And in our case, we may turn aside. We may chase after something sweet, something that pleases us. And we may think that settles the matter. In other words, I saw what God offered me. I chose something different. I guess that settles it. But what I love about the Lord is His love for us and His desire for what is best in our life is so strong that He pursues us quite often. And that pursuit means he'll throw things in our path, like a lion, so to speak. Roaring lions out of nowhere. Whatever he does, whatever he brings in our case, it's designed to disrupt our plans, disrupt what we decided to go after. It's supposed to shock us. It's supposed to leave us feeling vulnerable. It's supposed to make us feel a little weak. Because why? He wants to show us that when you rely on your own flesh, your own desires, your own plans, it's going to screw something up. At the very least, you're not obeying God. And in the long run... 
you may see any number of consequences from pursuing your own desires over God's that are unpleasant. But when we listen, when we go after what he's asked us to do, with all the uncertainties that it brings, then he brings his spirit, and he will fill the voids that we were using as excuse for why we couldn't pursue what he asked us to do in the first place. I won't have the time, I won't have the strength, I won't have the support, I won't find it enjoyable, it's not good for my family, it's not good for my health. I mean, whatever reasons we lay out there, God will take care of that, for he wants the best for us, and obedience is the way to get there. And when you come through one of those trials, one of those moments in which God tries to shock our conscience off of the path we've chosen, when the lion steps onto our path, stopping the progress we were trying to make away from where God wants us to go, and we have that encounter, and we sit down for a moment, and we say, like I think Samson probably did, what happened here? You have a quick moment there to change your mind, to make a new choice, to do something different. The shock to the system opens a door for the Lord to woo us back to him. But the outcome at that moment is not certain. And that's where a lot of us make our second mistake. First mistake is going our own way. Second mistake is when God shocks the system, resets the counter, puts everything in perspective again, and then asks us, now what do you want to do? We pick up and we go right back to where we were going the first time. Sometimes we listen, sometimes we don't. The thing is, he won't necessarily bring a second lion or a third one. Sooner or later, he says, you made your bed. And here was Samson's chance to rethink his life's choice, at least in terms of this wife. To turn down the Philistine wife, to think twice about who are the Philistines again, what was my calling, oh yeah, that's right, my purpose was to defeat the Philistine army, not marry their daughters. Instead, he keeps the moment a secret. Now you think this would be something you'd want to talk about, right? I mean, what strong guy wouldn't want to come home one afternoon and say, guess what I did today? I ripped the lion to pieces. Right? That would be bragging rights. But he keeps it a secret. Why do you think he keeps it a secret? Pretending it didn't happen. Maybe he's mystified by the whole thing, perhaps. Um, maybe he's just a quiet kind of guy. You'll see quickly, that ain't true. I think what he's doing is he's tossing aside something that pricks his conscience because what his flesh wants is where he wants to go. And any conversation about that line and his ability to defeat them might have raised an opportunity for someone else to question its meaning and to suggest it, in fact. And that's to be expected in this time of Israel's history. Because remember, what time are we living in again? What's the poster we should have put up here at the beginning of our study? They were doing what was right in their own eyes. And this is Samson living that life. In fact, in verse 7, we're told that when Samson meets the woman again, what does it say? She looks good to him. But in Hebrew, what it literally says is, she looked good in the eyes of Samson. Which is to say, she was not good in the sight of the Lord. At this point in the story, the covenant of marriage is struck and it sort of rushes through the details so you might have overlooked the process of what's happened but as he's gone from the lion into the town, sees the woman, what happens at that point is they strike a covenant which is how marriages were established which is to say they're betrothed but the marriage isn't formally consummated yet. And at this point, Samson and his parents would have gone back home leaving the bride with her family for a time. There would have been a betrothal period, and then later there's some planned time in which the families will come together for a formal marriage ceremony. Usually during this time, the father and the groom are preparing a home for the wife to live in after the marriage. 
And then when the, everything is set, there's going to be this special period when the groom returns to claim his bride from her home. And in the way the Philistines practiced marriage, there would be a feast, a week-long, seven-day feast at the bride's house. That's not normally the way it would be done, but in the Philistine culture, that's where it was done. And then after the feast of that one whole week, only after that would the bride and the groom enter the marriage tent and consummate the marriage. So they had a week of eating before the marriage. And then the marriage would have been formally taken at that point. And so what you see in the text I've already read is the arrival to betrothed, the departure by Samson and his parents, and now they've come back again to actually complete the wedding. And so in verse 8... We see Samson now returning to the bride's house some weeks or months later after the original betrothal. But it couldn't have been all that long in this case. And we know that because there's still the carcass of a lion in the field where it was originally killed. It hasn't decomposed to the point that it's gone. And as Samson's making the trek back to Timnah, he still has on his mind the moment with the lion. And that's perfectly expected, right? If you walk that same path a second time and you're passing the place where what happened before, your mind's like, I've got to go see this lion again because that was just one amazing day. And he walks off the path again, it says, turns aside again to see what's become of the carcass. And as we consider what he's found, I want you to notice for a moment Samuel's, Samuel's the author here, Samuel's choice of verbs throughout this encounter we've studied so far. Notice in verse 1, And verse 5, and again in verse 7, we're told Samson went down. He went down. He went down. It's true geographically, but more importantly, it suggests that Samson's taking a fall here. He's walking into temptation. He's walking into sin. He's going down again. Twice also in that text, it says he's turned aside. He's going down. He's turning aside. He's making all the wrong steps. A departure from obedience. And as Samson encounters the carcass... He sees something completely unexpected. In the animal's remains, bees have established a hive and they're producing honey. And this is very unexpected because normally bees would not use rotting flesh as a home. That's very uncharacteristic for bees. Flies, yes. Bees, no. Knowing that this isn't normal behavior for bees tells us something, doesn't it? It means the Lord has produced this. For Samson. The bees are not acting in their natural way. They're acting in an unnatural, or we might say supernatural way, because God is working in this moment to capture Samson's attention once more. What's the test this time? Well, the test this time for Samson involves his Nazarite vows. Inside the carcass of this dead animal, you have bees producing honey, which is something sweet, it's desirable, it's going to attract your interest, at least as far as your flesh is concerned. Now, Samson could have done a couple things here. He could have looked upon the scene, he could have said to himself, Oh, I see what you're doing here. I get it. Yeah, this is kind of cool. I see this. this is tricky, but I got you. This is a dead animal. And you've put something desirable inside a dead animal because you want me to eat that, but if I touch that, I'm breaking my vow to you. Because Nazarites don't touch unclean things. Dead animals are unclean. You can't touch a dead thing. And so he could say to himself, you know, the Lord's trying to get me to see something, isn't he? He's trying to get me to see that I'm following my flesh. I'm, I'm looking at things like honey, and I'm doing it in conflict with my vow to serve him. And he could have seen that reward only comes through obedience to the Lord. It can't be grasped with your own hand. You can't go after something and take it for yourself. You have to wait and be patient and let obedience bring the rewards that obedience will bring. But he doesn't do that. 
He fails the test. He's so eager to obtain that sweet reward that he does what he wants. He reaches in, we're told. And that's a very important phrase in the Hebrew. It makes clear that he went in with his hand and touched this animal. And in doing so, he acts in direct disobedience to his Nazarite vow. And therefore, he has once again fallen into disobedience and failed his test. We said a moment ago, sometimes God will give us that line, and that's grace. And sometimes he may give us a second one if we're not listening the first time. He didn't listen the second time. Even worse, Samson decides to take some of this honey to his parents and offer to them without telling them about the origins of the honey. And in the process, he is thoughtlessly, and I would argue selfishly, bringing defilement upon them as well. Now, they're not under a Nazarite vow, but every Jew was obligated to avoid touching unclean things. And if they had touched it, they would have had to have separated themselves from the fellowship of the nation of Israel, from any dealings with other Jews for seven days. How long are they going to be there? Eating and celebrating for seven days. If he doesn't tell his parents, then they're free to enjoy the ceremony. So from his warped sense of what is best, he was probably telling himself, I better not tell them where I got this, because otherwise they won't be able to be part of the celebration. But he gives it to them anyway. Defiling them. You know, it was mom's effort in the womb, while he was in the womb, that allowed him to be sanctified. It was her work of abstaining from certain things that sanctified him according to the Lord's instructions. Now he defiles her. In response, why did Samson share the honey with his parents? You know, he didn't have to. Was it just thoughtlessness? Or do you think he had a purpose in it? I wonder if he wasn't repeating the sin of the woman in the garden. Because once sin has taken hold in your heart, it's not uncharacteristic. In fact, it's very natural for us to look for opportunities to share that sin with others. That's what the woman did. She took a bite and she said, Now what do I do? I need him to eat this too. Because it soothes our wounded conscience when we bring others into our sin with us. It's a kind of distorted way of validating our choice if we can get others to follow with us in that sin. And that's what I think he's doing here, perhaps. Verse 10, Then his father went down to the woman, and Samson made a feast there, for the young men customarily did this. When they saw him, they brought thirty companions to be with him. And then Samson said to them, Let me now propound a riddle to you. If you will indeed tell it to me within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. But if you are unable to tell me, well, then you shall give me 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, Propound your riddle that we may hear it. So he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. But they could not tell the riddle in three days. Once again, we're told that Samson and his father went down, there's that phrase again, went down to Timnah for the feast. The Hebrew word for feast here is a very specific word, and it's relatively rare in the Old Testament. It means literally a drink banquet. That's what the word means, drink banquet. In other words, this is a feast centered on drinking wine, which is not necessarily uncharacteristic, but the choice of this word lets us know that Samuel, the author, wanted us to understand that Samson goes down to participate not only in the eating, but in the drinking which would indicate he's breaking the second of the three elements of the Nazarite vow. He's touched a dead animal, now he's drinking the fruit of the vine. And at this week-long feast, 
We're told that the bride's family invites 30 guests to the banquet as a sign of honor. And this would have been a bit of an honor for Samson to see such a large gathering for the sake of his wedding. And so there's this gigantic extended family and friends that have come. 30 people is a pretty substantial size crowd. And then what are you going to do? After you've done karaoke and after you've toasted everybody and now what are you going to do with the time? Remember, it's seven days. Have you ever planned a wedding party? Imagine having to fill seven days with stuff. All right, That's what they're faced with. And so part of what the social game involved was posing riddles to one another and letting people solve the riddles. This was part of what constituted social gatherings. And early in the week, and you can tell it's very early because it talks about the number of days here. Early in the week, Samson proposes one such riddle. He thinks back to the lion and the honey, which is a very strange scene, right? That made a big impression on him. Unfortunately, the wrong impression. But he thinks, oh, this is a perfect opportunity for me to stump the crowd. They'll never get this. And he poses the riddle, and he decides, this one's so good, I've got to put a wager on this one, because I know I can get something out of it. So this is what he proposes. He says, if you can't solve this riddle within the seven days of the feast, then each of the 30 guests would give him a linen wrap, he says, and a change of clothes. Now, linen wraps were large pieces of linen, fine linen, and they were worn directly next to the body, like we might think of underwear, let's say. They were rather valuable, though. Linen was valuable in general, and these were more formal-style wraps, things you would only wear when you were wearing very nice clothing on top of them. And then the change of clothes, that term, change of clothes, refers to festive garments that were very expensive and finely woven and intended only for very special occasions. So what he's basically saying is, I want you to give me some very expensive clothing, one from each of you, or I'll give each of you one. And that's the bet. And it tells us that Samson was apparently a clothes hound, because this seems to interest him very much. Now, it's a pretty good bet for each individual at the table because they're going to get something very valuable and they only have a one-to-one risk. They either lose a change of clothing or they gain a change of clothing, but that's the worst that could happen to each individual at the table. But Samson's putting a lot on the line here. Samson's got a high-risk, high-reward deal. He can get 30 for himself, but he has to give up 30 if he loses. So this tells you a couple of things. Number one, it tells you how confident he is that he's going to win this bet. But secondly, he's a risk-taker. This is a guy that just puts his neck out on the line, maybe without thinking carefully first about what he's doing. Then Samson gives a riddle, and he says, Out of the eater came something to eat. We know that's the lion is the eater, and what came out of the lion was the honey, obviously. And it says, Out of the strong came something sweet. Now that's the hard part of the riddle, because if I had stopped at the first part, you could have just named any carnivore and said the meat of the carnivore was what came out of it, somebody eating the flesh of the carnivore. The problem is that meat isn't sweet. And so now he has something that changes the whole nature of the answer. Something in that animal that was sweet. What could come out of a carnivore that's sweet? And that throws everyone off. And it says for three days, the first three days of the seven, the family comes together, they eat, they contemplate the puzzle, they probably threw ideas out, batted it around. Samson just sat there like a a cat that ate the canary. Not to mix my metaphors here, but he just sat there and just said, nope, that's not it, nope, keep trying, nope, those clothes are going to look good on me, aren't they? You can see what would happen in that kind of a situation. He appears to have won the bet, but not so fast. Our time is out for the day, so we won't finish the story today. I love cliffhangers, don't you? Maybe I'll get you back next week now, huh? Finally. No. Time will not allow, and and, uh, it's best that we uh, leave it there, because the rest of the story plays out through the rest of the chapter. I really need the rest of the chapter to finish this. 
But the Lord is going to bring these circumstances to a very interesting conclusion, one that suits His purposes. Remember, it started in verse 4 saying the Lord has a plan here. I mean, it's Samson's sinful flesh that wants the woman. We know that. But God's not permitting it because He's endorsing it. He's using the sin of Samson to eventually turn Samson to where he needs to go. It reminds me a little bit of of Numbers chapter 22 with Balaam who wanted to make money by cursing Israel and kept asking God if he could go. And God said, okay, fine, you can go, but you're only going to say what I tell you. And there's a sense of that here. God is allowing it only to the degree it serves his purpose. Next time we're going to see the Lord turning the tables on him. For now, as you leave today, I want you to put Samson aside for just a moment, the story that is, and ask yourself, Is the Lord using your disobedience at some level in your life to bring you into a crisis moment? Is there a lion of sorts impacting your walk, your path right now, giving you reason to rethink your course, putting you in that shock moment? Because if that's the case, then that would be an indication that the Lord has stepped into your life with a moment of grace. But the question then becomes, what are we going to do with it? And as I've said here many times in the past, there's the easy way to obey God and there's the hard way. The easy way involves God speaking to us, the Spirit leading us, us listening, saying no to ourselves when we want to conflict with God's instructions, and then following. That's the easy way. Why is it easy? Well, it's certainly not easy in and of itself. Quite often the instructions of God are difficult. Quite often the risks, the sacrifice that's required is challenging. In fact, it's almost always that way. But it's easier than the alternative. And the alternative involves turning aside, going down, seeking your own course. And then at some point, if God's grace is at work, he may turn the tables on you in the right moment. He may put something in your tracks that stops you and causes you to rethink where you're going. But that's hard. That's almost always hard. It involves broken relationships. It involves finances. It involves health. It can involve any number of things God may use to shock our system. The question is, when we get to that moment... Will we see what we should see, or will we see what Samson saw? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Father, as James says in his letter, praying to be tested, Father, I ask that you'd shock us if that's what's required. We have a year ahead of us, Father, and the turn of the calendar is often a time when we stop and we reflect and we consider where we've been and where we're going. We could do that any day of the year, Father, but uh, for some reason we choose to do it more now than usual. But so be it. Father, I pray that you would use this time of reflection to uh, get us to question some decisions in our life. If we're following you, Father, then reaffirm that. Encourage us. Show us that the difficulties that come are nothing in comparison to the glories that it will lead to. But Father, if we are, are still struggling, if we are still turning aside, going down, tempted by things that we ought not be tempted by, struggling to to step out somewhere, Father, where fear has caused us to hesitate. Whatever it is, Father, I pray that, like Samson had the opportunity to reconsider, I pray, Father, you'd give us that opportunity. But unlike Samson, Father, I pray that we would see it for what it is and go back to where you've called us. And we know, Father, that when we choose to do that, your Spirit will give us the power to do what's needed. Thank you, Lord, for that reminder. Give us a year ahead, Father, that we can turn back and look upon when it's over and think of all the ways in which we served you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.